you had to write down in a single sentence the most important lesson that you have learned in life, what would that be? Now, one, uh, one person uh, who was asked that question said that the most important lesson in this life is that the best things in life are free, like fresh air and Costco samples, which if you go to Costco on a Saturday afternoon, you can have lunch and not pay for a thing. All you got to do is go around. If you make a big circle around all the aisles, you'll have, you get a little piece of a hot dog, you get a little cheese, you get a little, and even a little cheesecake. You can, you can, you know, you could stuff yourself and, and not spend a dime at Costco. But I like something a little bit more serious than that, I think. And I, I was reading a quote by G.K. Chesterton, who was one of the most G.K. Chesterton was one of the most remarkable individuals of the 20th century. He was literally a genius. Uh, he combined uh, the abilities of a novelist, he was a critic, he was a poet, he was a popular theologian, and he was a writer of detective novels. I mean, the kind of guy you just hate, that you, that you could do everything. You know, you look at this person and you feel like, you know, you, you feel like a four-year-old that wait, is waving bye-bye when you get next to a guy like this. Now, towards the end of his life, he turned to the writing of his autobiography. And as part of the process, he tried to state in a single sentence the most important lesson that he had learned in life. And as the story goes, as he tells the story, he had many fits and starts, uh, a a lot of papers thrown into the waste paper basket, and he finally reached this conclusion. This is what he said. He said, the most important factor in life is whether you take things for granted or you take them with gratitude. Whether you take things for granted or you take them with gratitude. Now, we've all met people who, uh, they're very thankful with word and gesture, but uh, uh, they they just are, it's tough for them to go through the motions uh, without really, you know, feeling uncomfortable. There are people who are truly thankful in their hearts, I think, but they don't know how to do the gestures. They don't know how to thank people properly. There's people like here that, you know, people think you're unthankful. You're really not. You really have it in your heart. There are people uh, here who um, really uh, uh, are just going through the motions of thankfulness. They, they're able to speak the words of thankfulness. They do the gestures of thankfulness. But if you really deep, you know, peer deeply into their heart, they're really not thankful people at all. Um, there are others who can put them both together, sincerity of heart and, and clarity of word. And then there are always those people who are just, like I said, they're rarely thankful to anybody for anything. Now, we all know people like that, right? Those are the kind of people that we meet who just, they, they, they kind of have a way, these unthankful people of raising our blood pressure just a little bit, parents, I mean, what, you know, whatever, you know, the people that you, that you meet. Um, they just, they just, they don't, they're not thankful for anything. They're not thankful to anybody. They're not thankful to a parent or a friend or an employer or a neighbor for the sacrifices, for the kindnesses that have been rendered into their direction. In fact, we all know that these people, they, they kind of live life, and, and it says across their forehead, you, uh, at least you would think it would say, entitled. They are entitled to life's good things. They are entitled, or at least they feel, to people's kindnesses. And those are the kind of people, like I said, that just make us just real uncomfortable being around. But there is another dimension to the quality of gratitude. And I think it's what Chesterton maybe was thinking about when he wrote you know, his little sentence about gratitude. 
Because I believe that thankfulness is one of the prime indicators of our relationship with God. But it's more than that. I would be willing to say that when thankfulness is lacking, it indicates one of two things. Either that a person has never received forgiveness from God, or maybe they, for, they have received it, but they've never really understood what they have. Because whether we truly have embraced his forgiveness, I think is revealed by the depth of our gratitude to him. Now, the story that was just read to you a few minutes ago by Liz Yates illustrates this point maybe better than anywhere else in all of Scripture. Jesus had been ministering uh, by the time we get to Luke 7 here, and his fame was starting to rise. He was becoming a rock star. And the religious establishment's initial reaction to him was to attack his teachings and to attack his character. And in fact, in verse 34, if you look in Luke chapter 7, verse 34, just a couple of verses before what Liz read for us, it indicates that they had started to spread rumors about Jesus, about how he lived. Basically, what they were saying was, hey, listen, there are two Jesuses. There's the private Jesus and there's the public Jesus. You're only seeing the public Jesus. The private Jesus isn't as great as he seems at all. They were spreading lies about him. They were spreading rumors about him. But their char- charges, though his enemies' charges against him, they weren't resonating with the people because they were looking at him and they were listening to him and they were seeing what he had done and they were seeing him healing the masses. And it just, it, you know, it, it didn't stick, these charges, to most of the people. So one day, one of his opponents thought that it was time to have kind of a, a, a little powwow with this new unorthodox rabbi. So one of them, a Pharisee by the name of Simon, invited him to dinner. Now, maybe, look, I, I'm not really sure why I invited him to dinner. Uh, maybe he was trying to catch him, you know, when, you, when people are off guard, if they really do believe, you know, there's a public and there's a private. You know, when he's off guard and, you know, he's had a drink or two or something like that, maybe he's going to spill the beans and I'll have something to charge against him so that the people realize that, you know what, uh, he's not what he seems he is. You know, I, I, I don't exactly know why uh, he invited, uh, invited him. Maybe he was just curious. Maybe he was just curious. But as a visiting rabbi, Jesus would have been the guest of honor here. Absolutely. It was considered an act of merit to invite a visiting rabbi to your home if you were a religious leader. In other words, you get get brownie points for for having a visiting rabbi, especially one who had just taught people in a class over to your house. More than likely, Jesus had uh, just you know, either minutes before or sometime earlier in the day, had finished the teaching, and then he gets this invitation to lunch. Uh, Although Jesus sat at the head of the table, we're going to see in a minute, uh, it's easy to see that Simon had no intentions, had absolutely no intentions of really honoring him as as a special guest. Now, I know that because we know something about the rules, something about the social etiquette, of that society. Every culture, every society, every era has rules. We know that. Uh, They they govern how we deal with each other in a social setting. Understanding etiquette in the first century Middle East, folks, it is absolutely crucial to opening up this passage to us and the understanding of it. Don't forget what we've said. You know, the Bible was not written to us it was written to a first century audience, but it was written for us. Have I ever said that before? 
I said, oh, I think I have. Okay, by your faces. It wasn't written, written to us, but it was written for us. So the people that it, who it was written to, they got all this. They didn't need explanation. They understood what was happening just by stating it because they understood the etiquette of the day. They understood the mores of the passage. Now, there were certain rules, as I said, in society that would not have been neglected as a matter of course in a dinner party like this one. For instance, the customary greeting for an honored guest that would have come would have been a kiss. Now, when we're done a little while, you know, the guys, they'll meet in the back and they'll shake hands. Sometimes, because we, we like to hug at the crossing, right? We'll hug. But whenever guys hug, just ladies, you, you need to know this. When guys hug, they always beat each other up in the back. They do boom, boom, boom. They, you know, kind of bruise. You feel like, you know, I, I, I have the, uh, uh, the, you know, permission to hug this guy if I beat him up a little bit. And so that's, that's just what happens. That's just the way guys are. But back then, it wasn't like that at all. If you had someone coming into your house, you would give them a peck on the cheek if they were kind of on your social level. Now, if they were uh, above your social level, you wouldn't do that. You'd, you'd take their hand, and they would offer you their hand, and, and you would kiss their hand. It would be like a, a child to a parent or someone who had a rabbi over to their house, you know, a, a lay person. He, would, he or she would kiss their hand. Now, um, to neglect that... To neglect that whole kissing greeting was basically, the only way I could put it is it's, it's like you ignore them when they walk in your house. It's like snubbing them. Uh, today, it would be my, like me coming over to your house in the middle of January, 7 o'clock at night, 18 degrees outside. You don't tell me where to put my coat. You don't tell me where to sit. You don't offer me a cup of coffee, decaf, at 7 p.m. at night, right? You don't do any of that. And you would say to yourself, well, this is weird. And you would feel very uncomfortable. In fact, you might even feel that you had been snubbed. And you might be right. Another part of the first century Middle Eastern etiquette involved the washing of feet. The washing of feet was mandatory before meals. Mandatory. People wore sandals. Their feet got dirty, don't forget, dry, dusty. Those of us who are going to Israel, if you've never been there before, one thing that you're going to see that Israel has cornered the market on, it is rocks and dirt. They have cornered the market on it. There is dust everywhere. That's just the way it is. And it's hot, and there was no grass. So when you would come in, your feet would be filthy. So if, if, if you were the host, and it was somebody who was of a higher status than you, you would literally take a bowl of water, you would have them sit down, and you would wash their feet. Now, if they were on, you know, again, the same level as you socially, uh, you might have a servant wash their feet. Or, you know, and this didn't happen that often, because this itself was a little bit offensive, you'd give them a bowl and say, wash your own feet. But, but people, that, for the most part, that was even, you know, a kind of a little out of the mainstream. You would also give your guests some olive oil for anointing their heads. I'm, I don't get this one, honestly. I, I really don't. I mean, I have shampoo that for oily hair. I'm trying to get the oil out of my hair. These people are pouring oil onto their head. And I guess it has something to do with, you know what, it's so hot. It's uh, uh, there and it's so dry that it was kind of soothing. That's what I'm told anyway. That's what I read. That it was soothing to that first uh, century person, and it was refreshing. But that's what they did, those things. 
So here comes Jesus, this visiting rabbi, and nothing happens. None of those things happen. There's, there's no greeting. There's no washing of feet. There's no oil for the head. These were not subtle omissions easily overlooked. Jesus was ignored, and he was insulted, and it was done quite deliberately, I might add. See, the first century reader would get that. We don't get it. That's why I'm telling you. It was a, kind of a, 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 it was an intentional slap in the face to Jesus. Everyone who was there would have seen what was going on at the luncheon. Now, just one more thing about the setting of this story. In those days, lunches or big kind of banquets like this, they were, they were public affairs. They would often take place in the, the courtyard of a well-to-do person's home. People, they had their house, and then they had a big, usually walled-in courthouse, a square walled-in courthouse in the back of their home. Now, the public, very interesting, was allowed to come in to these lunches and to stand along the perimeter of the wall and to listen to the scintillating conversation that was going on at the tables in the center of the courtyard. And a lot of times the poor would come to these uh, lunches, not because they really cared one whit about what was being said at the tables, but because at the end of the dinner, if there was something left over, they got it. And it was probably their one meal for the day. So they, they were there too, and, and, and oftentimes the poor would wander in because they were not... You know, they were not kind of barred from coming in. Now, introduce into this scene a woman. Now, it would not have been a shock to see an uninvited woman appear in the courtyard. That is, until the people got a little closer and saw who this woman was. This particular woman's presence would have set tongues to wagging, and the crowd to literally part as she walked in like Moses before the Red Sea. That this woman would dare to come to the house of a Pharisee, a religious leader, would have been the talk of the town over breakfast the next morning, all over. Now remember, this was not just any wealthy business guy who was throwing this party. This was a Pharisee. The word Pharisee itself means separated ones. They were committed to to keeping their people from mixing with the idolatrous people all around them, the Gentiles all around them, which it was a very idolatrous culture. And there was part of me that gets the Pharisees. You know, Pharisees, we, we think of them now, and we think they have you know, fangs and, you know, horns and they, you know, they go and they eat little children or something like that because we have 2,000 years of that socialization or whatever you want to call it. But back then, if you knew a Pharisee, you knew the greatest guy in town, basically. Um, But I understand a little bit how they must have felt, even from a selfish standpoint, because I associate myself with sinners and I may be around them when they sin. And my flesh already cries out many times to be fed in ways that sinners feed their flesh. And there are times that I feel myself being more influenced by them than I feel they're influencing me. I'm in, or, or they're influenced by me, I should say. 
which makes me, when I start to realize that, it makes me feel kind of bad. So my reaction, my, my kind of default reaction, is to walk away, to keep my family away, and to kind of build a little wall, not a real wall, but kind of a, a, a social wall between us and between them. Jesus never did that. He saw them not as temptations to be avoided, but as people who needed to be redeemed. And that is why I can't say I don't understand anything about what the Pharisees were saying, avoiding contact with people of dubious reputation. The fact of the matter is, I understand it all too well. Anyway, here's this this woman who comes in. We don't have a name for her. We just have a past about her. And Psalm 30, uh, excuse me, verse 37 It tells us that this woman had lived, quote, a sinful life. Now, when you hear that term used to describe a young woman, what do you think of? You're not thinking that she's addicted to Pinterest or Instagram or that she's the town gossip even. Uh, The the fact that her lifestyle was so well-known in that town has led most commentators, almost all commentators and scholars, to believe that she was either a prostitute or she was, at that time, living an openly immoral life. And you know as well as I do, word gets around when someone is sexually loose. Ask anyone in your office or anyone at your school. They can always identify them. But apparently, this notorious woman had heard of Jesus, or maybe she heard him teach, maybe that very day, and she knew she shouldn't be there. But her curiosity drove her into the courtyard that afternoon. There was something about him. There was something about what he said that that struck her to the core of her being. So... Summoning up all the courage she could muster, she walked through the gates into that gathering, and now here she is standing at the outer limits of the courtyard. And you know what? As she's listening to the banter, to the teaching, I, I can't help but think that she's, she's kind of doing a review of her life. How, how, how did I ever get here? How did this ever happen? This... This isn't anywhere I thought I'd be. I remember my parents' house and how they loved me and they cared for me. And I know now they're, 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 they're ashamed of what I'm doing. How did I ever get to this place? Once the hope, the object of her parents' dreams. But we know things happen along the way. And her heart got hard, and her heart got cynical, and now she was what she was. But then she heard this rabbi talking about the kingdom of God. And she heard him say that it was available to everyone, to everyone who would respond, everyone. And she listened about how God thinks of her, how how God longs for her as a loving father longs for his daughter and she begins to dream at first that's just what it is it's a it's a passing thought that she quickly dismisses but then as she thinks about it more and more she thinks is this possibly a reality is it possible that it's not too late 
even for me. And folks, sometime between the hors d'oeuvres and the main course, she believes. She believes. And, and right away, an overwhelming sense of forgiveness, a, a sense of being clean for the first time in as long as she can remember sweeps over her. She is forgiven. And she is undone by the love of Jesus. A new start. A new dignity. A, a, a settled understanding that, you know what? From this day forward, things will be different. I can be different. And she is engulfed, literally engulfed, by a gratitude that she has never felt before. She was no longer going to be defined in terms of her past life. Things were going to change. And in the excitement, and in the joy, and in the flush of gratitude seeping over her, she finds herself moving, almost almost unconsciously, towards Jesus. And out from the shadows comes this uninvited, very notorious woman, and she begins to approach Jesus. Can you imagine this scene? I mean, can you even imagine this? Jesus is reclining uh, at one of the tables in the center of the court, and basically they were low. They were probably a foot and a half high, and people would, would, would uh, kind of lean on their arm on, uh, on pillows, and uh, they would eat you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and their, their feet would be out. Everybody's, it would look like uh, the spokes on a wheel, if you've ever seen. Obviously, we've all seen that. And, 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 and she approaches Jesus, and as she approaches him, I picture Jesus looking at her. And, and their eyes kind of lock on to one another. And in his eyes, she doesn't see judgment. She doesn't see ridicule. She's not embarrassed. All she sees is love. She just sees love and forgiveness. And she is so undone by this that she's overcome with gratitude. And she cannot hold back her tears. Now, you and I know that some people cry at the drop of a hat. But for most people, by the time the tears begin to fall, their heart and their emotions have done enough twists and turns to make a, a circus contortionist green. They're just wrestling with themselves, and then the tears come. And I think it was that way with this woman. There was a tear, and then there were two, and then a stream of tears began to pour from her eyes, down her cheeks, onto the very feet that she now stood transfixed over. Tears of sadness over what she had done. Tears of gratitude for what he had done for her. Tears of unbelievable joy because a whole new life was now in front of her and she knew it for the first time. Let me ask you something. The last time you experienced an emotional time when the tears began to flow, what... What did you do? Let me tell you what happens with people who come into my office and tears begin to flow. They immediately look for the tissue box, which is right there, and they grab tissues and they dab their eyes 
And then they say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. They try to apologize. They, they want to hide. They wish the tears hadn't come. They, 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 they wish that somehow they were strong enough not to let the tears flow. Not so with this woman. When the tears came, she let them come. Instead of stemming the flow from her eyes, she let them pour freely. And not only did she let them come freely, the tears, and not caring who saw her, but somehow she had the presence of mind to direct her tears over the feet of Jesus. Now remember, his feet are a mess. They're dirty. And what happens when you add water to dirt and to dust? Simon did not think to honor Jesus, his guest, enough even to let the servants wash his feet. But now, but now the feet unwashed by Simon were being washed by the tears of this woman. And she, in effect, was saying, I am your servant. I honor you because of what you have done for me. Have you ever had your heart touched by Christ in that way? When was the last time you could honestly say, my heart has been shattered by the magnitude of Christ's gift of forgiveness? When was the last time? Whether we truly have embraced his forgiveness, I think is revealed by the depth of our gratitude to him. Now she's got a problem. Okay. Tears, dirt, mud, basically. He's... He's kind of worse off than when she began, in a sense. And, 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 and you know, who, how, how is she going to dry his feet? She wasn't going to ask somebody for a towel. She wasn't going to ask these, these increasingly agitated people, you know, who has, she has already, you know, broken every protocol. But then she commits another shocking breach of etiquette. Now, women in her day wore their hair up in public. It was not allowed to hang loose in mixed company. In fact, if a woman, if a, if, a, if a wife let her hair down for any man other than her husband, it was literally grounds for divorce. We know that without a doubt. This woman had let her hair down for many, many other men. And now she was going to let it down one last time. One last time. But this time it was different. This time it was right after an entire adult life of getting it wrong. And she unties her hair and she lets it flow and she wipes her tears from the feet of Jesus and she sops up all the moisture which was now mingled with dirt with her hair. But she wasn't done. For now she bends a little lower still. And the text tells us she puts her lips to the feet of Jesus and kisses them. Now, you read that and you say, well, maybe you know, that's a mess. Maybe she just, you know, just one of those, one of those quick ones when you really don't want to. But you, if you look at the Greek and the way the original language was written, it, it gives a very definite picture of a woman who is smothering the feet of Jesus with kisses again and again and again and again and again. And, 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 and it, it implies that in front of hushed and increasingly horrified onlookers, 
she was doing something that was just absolutely out of the mainstream. There was no rules. There was no thought. It had never been done. But she did it. And then Luke says, Luke says one more extraordinary thing. Luke says that she took an alabaster jar of ointment. Uh, it was probably a flask that was worn around her neck, a kind of perfume, probably an expensive perfume. And, and look, the flask would have, been, would have been important in her line of work. To use a drop at a time here and there. And she had used a drop here and there many times before. But now she breaks it open and she empties it. She empties it. The, 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 the entire thing, not only because she wasn't going to need it anymore, but because she wanted to anoint Jesus as a sign of her love and her devotion and her gratefulness, as any servant would do a king. She's, she's literally pouring out her old life. But she doesn't pour it on, her, on his head. She pours it on his feet. And then she starts all over again with the kissing of his feet. She is so broken. She is so undone by the sheer goodness of being forgiven that it is as if she has forgotten who she is. She's forgotten where she is. She's forgotten what she's done. Unmindful of the stares, of the rude comments, of the whispers, she unashamedly pours herself out in adoration and in gratitude to the one who had set her free. When was the last time that you had a moment like that with Jesus? Have you ever? Folks, whether we truly have embraced his forgiveness is revealed by the depth of our gratitude to him. Now Simon, the Pharisee, the host, He's watching this whole spectacle. He's watching this go on. And I think that Simon, I, I, I said before, I'm not even sure why he invited Jesus. I, 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 I'm just surmising here, but you, you wonder if in the back of his mind, he didn't have this much of a curiosity that maybe this guy is the guy. That he was the Messiah that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. He's coming sooner or later. Don't, don't you always want it to happen in your lifetime? Why not? Why not here? Why not now? And I kind of think he probably was thinking about that in, in the back of his mind, hoping that he might see the promises come true in his lifetime. But as he watches this spectacle, he realizes that his dark suspicions against this young rabbi, they were right all along. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this... He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. You know what the Jews believed? The Jews believed that an important mark of the great prophet, the Messiah, would be his ability to discern spirits. And when Jesus let this obviously known sinful woman touch him, it signaled to Simon in his mind, this could not be the Messiah, since the Messiah would never let a woman like her defile him with her touch. And the irony of the story is that not only did Jesus know what kind of a sinner this woman was, but he knew what kind of a sinner Simon was too. 
So he tells Simon a story. And basically, in the story, he's explaining her while exposing him. And it says in verse 41, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, listen, when you got no resources and you got no money, uh, it really doesn't matter who owes the most, <laughs> does it? I mean, I, I mean, there was debtor's prison back then. If you owed 50 bucks or 500 bucks or denarii, as was a day's wage, you're both sharing a cell. It really, it really didn't matter. Even today, if, if because of your debt you go into bankruptcy, you, 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 you do the court papers, you file for bankruptcy, whether you owe a little or, or a lot, you and the guy next to you, you're both declared what? Bankrupt. You have the same designation. But in this story, the person who is owed graciously canceled the debt of both. He assumes the debt himself, and he forgives those who owed him. He didn't didn't pretend that there was no debt. He didn't excuse their failure getting into debt. He didn't try to extend the pay period. He just forgave their debt. He just forgave them. He then asked Simon a question, verse 42. He says, now, which one of them will love him more? Simon, uh, do you th- who do you think will have more of a reason to be knocked off his feet by this gracious overture? Whose heart do you think is more shattered? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said, which, which makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? The greater the forgiveness, the greater the sense of relief, Right? The, the, the woman loved so lavishly because she had been, give, been forgiven of so much. She had been forgiven so thoroughly. Now, for the first time with this story, Jesus links forgiveness and love and gratitude. Whether we truly have embraced his forgiveness is revealed by the depth of our gratitude to him. Now, listen. Love is a response to forgiveness. And we express our love Through gratitude. Forgiveness comes before both love and its expression of heart-filled gratitude. What forgiveness does is that it arouses love inside of us, us, which then is expressed how? In gratitude. The level of my love and gratefulness to Christ is directly related to my experience and understanding of forgiveness. Simon did not love the Lord. Why didn't Simon love the Lord? Because he had not been forgiven. He could be generally polite with the Lord. He could hold a conversation, a polite conversation with him, but he couldn't love him. So why in the world would he ever be grateful? Jesus had shown Simon that he loves little because he had been forgiven little. But wait, wait a minute. Isn't that a good thing? And not, 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 not that, he, that, that he loves little, but the fact that he didn't have that many sins to be forgiven in the first place? You know, I, I just wonder if he, he really got the lesson. I don't think he really did. Jesus, are you saying this woman 
is the one who owes the 500 denarii, right? That's what you're saying, right? And I'm the guy who owes the 50. Am I, am I tracking you right? Are you telling me that God is saying, Simon, you are such a righteous, you are such a good man, you hardly sin at all, you really don't need to be forgiven that much. That's, that's what you're saying, Jesus, right? So, so wait, if, if, you, if, if you're saying that, are you now blaming me for living a clean life? Here's Simon's problem. You know what it was? One word. Perception. Perception. As Gary Inrig said, we are not forgiven more or less. We are forgiven all or nothing. Simon saw himself as a 50 denarii guy. He saw himself as a little sinner. Listen, it's not that he, he thought he was sinless. If, if Jesus said to him, dude, have you ever committed this? Of course, you know, yes. Nobody's perfect, right? We, we, we get it. Uh, you know, but I'm certainly not like this contemptible woman. And yet, can you think of a man who is more filled with judgment and contempt and disgust and self-righteous thinking? See, that's who Simon was. Now, the question that this story raises is this. Who really is the big debtor here? Who's the big debtor? John Ortberg wrote this. He said, there is a sin defining this room, but it's not the sin Simon thinks it is. It is the sin of lips that won't kiss, knees that won't kneel, eyes that will not weep, hands that will not serve, and perfume that will never leave the jar. It's the sin of a heart that will not break, a life that will not change, and a soul that is too stubborn and proud to love. The greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, Simon. You don't. Do you know why you don't? Because you can't. Because you can't. And you can't because you're blind to your own sin and your own need. Simon, you are the biggest debtor of all. I am not denying that she is a 500 denarii person. But Simon, you too are a 500 denarii guy. You are separated by a degree so slight that you can't even put a sliver of paper between you. She is in desperate need of grace. She is in desperate need of forgiveness for a heart that is broken over her sin. But you, you need forgiveness for a heart that is hard and blind to your own sinfulness. See, you need forgiveness too. Verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? And I, you know, I'm reading this passage, and I'm going, obviously, I can't prove this. I just have a feeling. Simon's there. The woman's here. And, and Jesus is talking to Simon, but I think he's looking at the woman. I think, I think he's looking straight into her face, although he's directing his comments to the person directly next to her. He turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you? Simon, do you, do you really see this woman? See, I don't think you do, but let me draw you a picture for you. And as he looks at this woman, 
And her eyes are beaming, and they are radiant with love, with new hope. He speaks to Simon, and he says, I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. You, Simon, see this woman as nothing but a sinner. And she will always be a sinner in your mind. Perhaps in your best moments, sometime on a Wednesday morning when things are going well, you're thinking of a person like this, that you know what? Maybe if she comes back and she grovels a little bit and, and, you know, she spends a long time doing penance and a long time saying that she's sorry and, you know, and she's on probation for a number of years, maybe then she can get back into the good graces of the community and allowed back into worship in the synagogue. See, Simon, that's what you see. That's all you see. But I see a woman who, because she has been forgiven much, loves so much. And because she loves so much, she is lavishly grateful. Because whether we truly have embraced his forgiveness, I think is revealed by the depth of our gratitude toward him. And then turning back to the woman, verse 48, he looks at the woman and he says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus Christ publicly stands with this woman and says, what has been, has been, it is now in the past. Your sins have been forgiven. And, 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 and that becomes a springboard for her love, which led to her gratefulness. We are grateful in direct proportion to our understanding of forgiveness. I believe that. And you know, the the, the people knew at that moment that were listening to him, these religious leaders and others, uh, he, he was claiming authority for himself. I can't forgive somebody for you. You know, somebody knocks this guy off, off his feet. I, you know, I can't forgive, uh, for, you know, forgive that person for you. The only, the only sins I could forgive are sins against me. So what was Jesus saying when he says, your sins have been forgiven? What, who was he saying that he is? He was saying that he is almighty God, an offended holy God, and only an offended holy God can forgive sins against him. And, and, and listen, just to make sure that she knew how the formula went, we look in verse 50. It says, your faith is saved you. Not your love, not your gratitude that is issued from your love. Your faith, your faith, your faith has saved you. Now, the story and the parable, it really forces us to look deep into ourselves. And the, the meaning, I think, is clear. Gratitude and love for the Savior are evidence that we have been forgiven. Now, most of us here this morning do not have that woman's sordid history. Some of us may, but it doesn't matter. The real question is whether or not we have her heart. Do we have her heart? Not to love is not to have grasped forgiveness And now we must determine to break that alabaster vase. 
to pour it out in love on our Lord and to fill the room with a fragrant worship. See, that's what we're called to do now. Thanking our Savior is a natural response to having been forgiven by our Savior. And our relationship with him is revealed by our gratitude toward him. Because whether we truly have embraced his forgiveness is revealed by the depth of our gratitude to him. And in both the privacy of our inner hearts and in a public forum such as this, we need to show him, we need to show others our gratitude that we have been truly forgiven. There are no little sinners, so there is no little forgiveness, so there can be no little gratitude. You see, our relationship with him is revealed by our gratitude toward him. Do you understand what has been done for you, Christian? Do you? If you do, then go ahead. Break the vase, pour it out. He's worth it. 